Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, why senior civil servants are suing the Prime Minister, why paid decentralisation could cause trouble for the Scottish Government, and in other news, why priests are falling out with God. Hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and this is the first episode of our third series and what an episode it is. We've got tons of good stuff coming up. We've got Dave Penman, the General Secretary of the Senior Civil Servants Union, the FDA, talking about why the union's suing the Prime Minister, uh, why paid decentralisation is set to cause problems for the Scottish Government, and why the whole notion of civil service reform, as uh, articulated by, say, Dominic Cummings and others, really is rather um, nebulous, to use Dave's expression. When you also have a new feature, Thought for the Week, Mel Sims from the University of Glasgow gives her take on one of the main industrial relations issues of the week, plus a selection of news that's caught my eye from around the trade union movement. So before turning to to Dave Penman, uh, our special guest for this episode, let's have a look at some of the stories that have made their way across my desk and that have caught my eye. First up is an excellent initiative called Strike Map. Now, Strike Map is uh, an attempt to show in map form where industrial disputes are happening in in the UK, because currently, as the creators of Strike Map themselves say, there are no coordinated records kept of strike action that's happening in the country, and the map is an attempt to start to catalogue that action. And the hope of the authors, the cartographers, is that it will be useful to, to other workers. You can submit a strike, you can submit tales from uh, a strike campaign or a picket line, and you can see where industrial action is taking place, who's taking it, who the employers and unions are that, that are involved. A really interesting development. And you can access all that if you put in Strike Map UK or one word into any search engine, it will take you to their WordPress site and their social media stuff. Now, featuring on that Strike Map, very clearly, I imagine would be the members of the GMB union who have been taking strike action over the last five days in British Gas, which is part of the Centrica group. Uh, It's amazing, isn't it? How some you know, sometimes it takes it seems to take an age for ideas that are clearly not going to fly to to actually get through to employers. British Airways and Heathrow Airport tried this, fire everyone and rehire them on poorer terms and conditions over the summer. They got absolutely lambasted, destroyed their employee engagement program, just had the most torrid time. And yet here we have Centrica, British Gas, their CEO, Chris O'Shea, doing exactly the same. Exactly the same. We'll fire everyone and rehire you on terms that are up to 20% less. So the, the union go in and try and negotiate, try and get a more sensible approach to the challenges the company's facing. What's the compromise that the company comes back with? I tell you what, we'll reduce your terms and conditions by only 10%. I mean, come on, come on. So just before Christmas, there are a couple of very decisive votes by GMB members. 
86% rejected the company's proposals, and then 89% voted for industrial action. Industrial action over five days has, has just finished as we're recording this episode of Union Dues. Still no change in the company's position. Looks set to be a long, hard slog, which actually won't do anything to fix the company's problems. You know, negotiate, talk, find a solution that doesn't involve trashing your employees. And last, but by no means least, uh, I mean, it's one thing for, say, senior civil servants to sue the prime minister. But what do you do when your boss is God? I mean, not metaphorically, but literally God. Well, kind of that's the dilemma that Norwegian priests have found themselves in. Now, there is a union for Norwegian priests, would you believe? Yes, really, it's true. And they are in dispute with their management over the allowances that are paid to them for their priestly responsibilities. It's about cash. It's about treating people fairly. It's about the long-term viability of being a priest in terms of the, the physical rather than the spiritual issues that they face. So good luck uh, to, to them in uh, persuading their management that uh, perhaps God's will needs to be done in a slightly different way to the one that they're proposing. Well, listeners, it's now my pleasure to introduce you to our special guest for this episode, Dave Penman. Dave is General Secretary of the FDA, the Union for Senior Civil Servants, and also uh, through their Managers in Partnership uh, organisation, Senior Managers in the Health Service as well. In a really fascinating conversation, Dave describes how his union is meeting the challenges of a prime minister who seems not to be able to do the right thing by civil servants, uh, problems about negotiating pay with the devolved government in Scotland, the success of managers in partnership, and his thoughts on civil service reform. Here he is. Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA. Very welcome uh, to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks so much for taking part. Thank you for inviting me. And and great to see you in such rude health uh, after the ravages of COVID have been through your household, I believe. Yes, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> no, 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 no fun, no fun. Dave, I suppose as we as we, as we look into the new the new year, the standout story for me in terms of the FDA seems to be the as yet unresolved issue about the Prime Minister's conduct in response to the allegations of bullying by the Home Secretary which I understand the union has, has now instructed solicitors to take to take action on because the Prime Minister is, is also the Minister for the Civil Service. I mean, that's a kind of, you know, when you're suing the Prime Minister, it's, you know, things are clearly not right and, and problematic. What, why, why did you feel it was necessary to take, to take that step in particular? And, and how do you see the, the path unwinding from this point onwards? Um, but it was interesting because it's actually an issue that we've been trying to make progress on for about three years since the kind of Me Too moment happened in Westminster. We've recognised that it highlighted, I think, for a lot of us, the inadequacies of the kind of current process for dealing with some of these issues. And there's this odd situation for civil servants where they're working with ministers who are not employees. It's the same essentially as happened in Parliament, where you had the parliamentary staff working alongside MPs. And if, if there was a question raised about behaviour, you couldn't deal with it the way a normal employer would deal with it. We had actually had occasions in the past in Parliament where MPs had refused to cooperate with investigations and there's no sanction that can be taken because they're not they're not employees in a conventional sense. And so whilst it's taken us three years to, to, to resolve a lot of those issues in Parliament, the same dynamic applies in the civil service. And so we had we'd started dialogue with the Cabinet Office about this point. And the ministerial code was changed 
which is the code that governs the behaviour of ministers. And it's actually meant to deal with normal kind of political challenges like conflicts of interests or, or, mm-hmm. or breaches of cabinet responsibility. That's really what the ministerial code's about. Mm-hmm. But they included, the Theresa May included a couple of paragraphs in there around bullying of, of civil servants. And of course, essentially what that means is that's the standard that they're held to account on. But yeah. what they failed to do was put in place a process which would be akin to a normal HR process for saying, well, how do we investigate this? How are conclusions reached? What are the rights of individuals who raise complaints about behaviour of ministers? And how then do you kind of have a decision that comes at at the end of that? Or, you know, if there is a decision, how can it be challenged? So they have consistently failed, despite us pressing them for three years, to introduce a proper, meaningful process. Now, all of that was to some degree, although there had been issues that had raised this around Westminster and the conduct of ministers at the beginning, there wasn't a kind of live case. So actually, when the the Home Secretary allegations came to the fore, this was really the first big test of this. And of course, it's been found wanting because all of the issues we raised three years ago came to the fore. An investigation was concluded. There were no rights for those who raised um, complaints. That investigation had concluded after a couple of months, but the Prime Minister, for political reasons, held on to that investigation. In actual fact, there were no obligations on the Prime Minister to publish anything, and the only reason he actually published, and we saw what happened, and it exposed the flaws in the system, was because the Prime Minister's advisor on the Ministerial Code resigned because essentially the Prime Minister was ignoring the evidence before him. And if it hadn't yeah. been for that resignation, the, the Alex Allen's report would probably never have been published. And the Prime Minister would have just have said, I've concluded that the Home Secretary yeah. breached the Ministerial yes. Code, and we wouldn't have known that actually this evidence had been uh, amassed uh, and made clear that the, the Home Secretary had bullied civil servants. So it has exposed all of these flaws in that ultimately the Prime Minister can make an overtly political decision. The only, one of the things I said was the only transparent thing about the whole process was the Prime Minister's decision. It was a blatantly transparent political choice, despite all of the evidence that she didn't breach the ministerial code. There are two elements here around the kind of Prime Minister's prerogative, because essentially the ministerial code falls into this Prime Minister's prerogative. (laughs) And that what we are saying is that there's clear evidence she breached the code, because the code's quite clear about bullying and that that ministers shouldn't bully their civil servants, obviously. And it's quite clear the evidence was there that she did. But whether the Prime Minister Mm. sacks or not, is a matter for the Prime Minister. He could do any number of things. And, and one of the things that we found in Parliament as well was there was a kind of similar situation where because the processes weren't appropriate, there was there was no kind of graduated punishment. You were either let off or you were sacked. And that's, that's how it operated in Parliament as well, which inevitably pushes you on the basis that the Prime Minister felt he had an... His only choice would have been to sack her because actually there isn't a process that normally allows for other types of kind of punishment for these issues as you would have in an employment situation. So he made a political choice to say she hadn't breached the ministerial code because that was his get out of having to sack her because he thought if he had acknowledged the breach of the ministerial code, he would have felt, because there's not really a precedent for not sacking, that he would have to have sacked her. And so that's the problem that we've got, that, that essentially civil servants have raised complaints They've been investigated, evidence has been found, and for purely political reasons, the Prime Minister's ignored that. 
but this is this. I mean, I'm kind of you know, you know, I'm sitting here open mouthed, really, in a way, though, because this is this is just so contrary to good established employment practice when it comes to allegations of misconduct or bu- or, or bullying. And actually, it's a missed opportunity for government or anyone to learn. You, you, you don't you, you don't establish a process whereby there's an audit trail. And at the end of it, there's a range of sanctions or actions you can take, which seeks to demonstrate you take on board the learning points. And, and it seems to me that I mean, of course, you know, the Home Office is is a is a kind of bad place in the sense that Sir Philip Rutnam, of course, permanent secretary, left the Home Office and is now suing for constructive dismissal. The government has also. I noticed somewhere suddenly abandoned any notions of wanting to carry on with unconscious bias training, which suggests, you know, either great ignorance or great, great arrogance. The impact on, on your members must be um, kind of pr- profound in the sense that, that there must be quite a sense of frustration. I, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it, frustration is a good word because there's nowhere to go. This is part of the problem. There's no way to challenge the, these decisions, which is why we've found ourselves in a position where potentially we are having to explore whether we could seek to challenge judicially the Prime Minister's decision on the ministerial code breach. We don't want to get involved in the issue of sanction. We believe that absolutely is the Prime Minister's prerogative to make the decision on it. And it does recognise the unique situation of ministers and politicians. But we want to create a situation where essentially there is some degree of independence of decision-making based on fact, and then recognise that, that there are some elements which you would have to leave because of your constitutional arrangements with the Prime Minister. But what he can't do is simply ignore the facts. And and by doing that and saying that the Home Secretary didn't breach ministerial code, where does that, when there's evidence, he hasn't produced evidence to say she didn't, he's just said, well, actually, I don't agree with the recommendation. He's not, he's not done an evidential decision. And so where does that leave the next accusation and, and where does that leave other civil servants who, you know, you're talking about the most powerful people in the country, right? That they are having to, to you know, stand up and challenge the behaviour. Uh, what are they going to think if they say, well, actually, what I now know is, regardless of the evidence, the Prime Minister is ultimately only going to make a decision about what suits him politically, He's not going to make a decision that a Prime Minister should based on the evidence. He should be putting party aside and making the decision as Prime Minister and Minister for the Civil Service rather than a political choice. And that's what you hope a Prime Minister will do at a variety of times And when it comes to kind of the efficacy of government. And for us, on this point, when it comes to the conduct of ministers in relation to civil servants, and he is absolutely demonstrated that he's not prepared to do that. And that's why we have to explore the, the option of saying, actually, is this something that potentially is judiciable? Because that would essentially say to the Prime Minister, it would force him, because he would know that those decisions could be challenged in future if he was faced with the same choice again. But it's not an easy choice for us. It's a very expensive choice. It, it takes us into an area of law where there will be a lot of those in government to feel that the courts are interfering in what is sort of political choices. You know, we've seen that around some of the issues around Brexit. We don't particularly want to get embroiled in any of that as a politically neutral trade union. But we have to look not only in relation to this current decision, but, uh, but what it says about the future. In all of this, one of the points for us is really saying that wherever you work, you should have the ability to challenge inappropriate behaviour and there should be a mechanism in place 
that will investigate that, that will deal with it, but also is an effective mechanism for policing it so that it actually stops it in the first place. If a minister knows there's an effective independent process which people can use to challenge their behaviour, what you hope is actually you won't have it in the first place and it will help regulate that, that behaviour. Yeah, and I, I absolutely understand that. It's not just in the Home Office, not just in Whitehall, where, where there is this problem of poor employment practice, I suppose you, you, you could call it. I mean, you've got, you've got your members in Scotland being dragged unfairly into the, the inquiry into Alex Salmon. You've got, you've got your members in Northern Ireland who, you know, there's no head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service because what's, what seems to be like political bickering or intrigue. This is a, you know, this is clearly, um, a widespread issue on the judicial case, though, again, taken against Prime Minister. What, what are the timescales involved? When do you expect some movements towards some sort of resolution? So, so I, I mean, ultimately, we, we've we've started the process, which is the pre-action protocol letter that we've issued, and we're looking to conclude that. And for us, it's a big step. You know, it's a big step because yeah. there are huge financial risks. There is every possibility the government, because they believe this is a point of principle on Prime Minister's prerogative, they would seek to challenge any decision that didn't go their way. So we would have to be prepared to, I think, see this to the Supreme Court, which for a small union can be very expensive if if we were to lose because we would we'd face the other side's costs. And, and to be honest, we don't particularly think this is an area that you should be getting dragged into law. You know, it's, it's not the best way to actually pursue this. So we're thinking carefully about it. Um, but we've started that process. We'll assess as we go we go along. We have to be very cognizant this is members' money that we're spending on it. And if we're going to risk that, we need to be clear that we think that there's an overall gain for us as an organization and also that the risks are balanced in our favor. We're not just going to take a punt on this. So we're kind of in the middle of that just now. When we get to the next step of it and assessing the government's response and deciding where we're going, we'll obviously let people know. But I mean, I think genuinely we, we don't, you know, venture into this willingly in many ways we're kind of we're kind of feeling that point you said about frustration i think is how we all feel about it that there should be a point of which the government and the prime ministers act in the best interest of the country and the civil service and not just a kind of partisan political interest but unfortunately that's where we are and it shows no signs of changing so we feel that that we have very little choice on this we just have to be careful about it, to be honest. We don't, we're not just looking for publicity here. We're trying actually to create a, a process where, uh, and we hope that there's still an opportunity for the government to reflect and say, actually, what we need here is a proper process. We need to separate out how conduct around this, uh, in terms of kind of employee on employee, if, is the best way to describe it in relation to those working in government, whether they're ministers or civil servants, how that conduct is regulated and dealt with and separate that out from the ministerial code because it's just not an appropriate way to deal with it. Now, the government could do that at any point, And if they did, I think we'd step back because actually it's about making this work for, for the future rather than just kind of rehashing a decision that's, that's already been taken. Yes, indeed. I mean, you, you're right. I mean, there is, a, there is a ready solution, isn't there? But I'm, I'm kind of left reflecting, reflecting that it's quite a hallmark of... Theresa May's premiership that she often willed the end for something without having any real considerations to the means and that those two paragraphs in the ministerial code seem to be a prime prime example of that yeah I mean it was it was interesting when when, when we first had the dialogue about that that was very much your conclusion 
Yes. You can't just say, don't microwave your civil servants. Do you know what I mean? They should know that no, they're not supposed to bully. And it's, you know, that's kind of, you know, so the, the fact that there are, you know, paragraphs in the Ministry of Code does not solve it. You need an effective way of kind of policing it. Ministers already know that they're not supposed to behave like that sort yeah. of stuff. And so we, you know, it was self-evident that this was going to happen. And it was clear at that point that actually this was it. You could end up in a situation where because all of this, there is no guarantee of transparency, you know, that this becomes a political choice. So it was all predictable, you know, that this is where we would be as well, which is why it's so disappointing. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's well, let's hope there's a, a strong smell of coffee up, wafting up the nostrils of the minister's concern, and, and that, that they draw back from the brink. In, in more conventional terms, though, I mean, the, your members are, are you know suffering frustrations in, in other ways, and I you know I know the union does not resort to industrial action readily, but in Scotland, the the Crown Office and Procurative Fiscals d- Department, I mean, it looks like there's some prospect, real prospect of industrial action. What's what's at the root of that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. It feels very personal to me because. I started in FDA in 2000 and I started dealing with this issue in 2001. This is our kind of third dispute around pay and procreative fiscals that I've personally been been involved in and I've scars on my back on. And each time what we've tried to resolve the issue at the heart of this dispute, which is about the pay levels for the lawyers who are working in the Crown Office and Procreative Fiscal Service, versus the, the, the pay levels for lawyers elsewhere in Scottish government. And because of the way delegated pay works, each of those organisations is dealt with as a separate employer, though essentially they are operating under the arm of Scottish Government. And obviously as devolution um, has developed, that's actually got stronger and and those kind of links have got a lot closer. So twice now we've actually reached agreements that the second time followed another industrial action ballot uh, in 2007, where we, and in both of those occasions, we were able to reach a settlement which brought pay much closer between the two organisations. But then each time, it's then started to separate again. And so that issue again, it, it leads to frustration and raises concerns. You see a drift of people coming into property fiscal service and then seeing actually I can get £10,000 pay rise by going and essentially doing a less high profile and public facing role and, you know, and just go and work on the other side of Edinburgh and get a 10 grand pay rise essentially for, for doing this, wow. the, the same kind of level of work. So that's, that's what's at the heart of it. We've been trying to make progress with, uh, for about two years now, uh, with, with government and essentially I have some sympathy for the service because ultimately this can only be solved by Scottish government allocating resources yeah. to it and dealing with it. But, uh, but I mean, it's not, it's kind of not rocket science. If, if, if we've been round the block three or perhaps, perhaps even more times and, you know, pay catches up and then it, then, the, then it, the gap opens up again, you would, you know, it's not a surprise if it has the consequence that we've just been, been talking about. I mean, it's the, the short termism of, of politicians is, um, disturbing yeah and it's it's and what it does in in an, in an or, in a kind of country like scotland but it's relatively you know small numbers and you know a lot of those people are working in just different offices in edinburgh and they can see quite clearly what pay delegation does and these clear disparities that actually are not kind of that you know you you wouldn't want to be here if you're a blank sheet of people this isn't necessarily what you'd create it's um, it's one of the many frustrations that we have around pay delegation in the civil service. And of course, what you end up in devolved administrations and even kind of smaller microcosm of it, where those differences are, 
and something like this are just darker and clearer for people to see. Mm. So therefore, it becomes more frustrating um, and people feel less valued because they say, well, I'm working for Scottish Government. That's what it feels like if you're a, a lawyer working for the prosecution service in Scotland. Um, and certainly that's how the Scottish Government want you to think. You know, like, you know, as, as an organisation and as a nationalist administration that, that wants kind of separation, you're saying I'm working for the same government. Why is pay so different? And obviously you have those disparities across um, lots of government departments, but it just becomes even starker in the devolved administrations. We've had an indicative ballot, which has demonstrated um, an appetite both in the number of people's voting and in a very strong mandate for industrial action. We're starting the process of the kind of the statutory process now to do that. We're obviously in dialogue with the Scottish Government and Procurator Fiscal Service. They're going through their kind of budgeting process just now. We are hopeful that that's an opportunity for them to recognise that this is a priority. There are lots of priorities on government just now. We recognise that. Uh, but prosecution work becomes ever more complex. We're seeing that down here as well. You know, when you've seen a lot of the issues around conviction rates around kind of sexual offences, the complications that now arise around disclosure, the volume of disclosure, the complexity. So crime tends to be more complex rather than kind of simple kind of street crime sort of stuff. So yeah. the job gets more difficult. The organisations need more lawyers and they need good quality lawyers. So the challenges around pay become even starker sort of stuff. And that's the same for CPS as it is for the Procurator Fiscal Service in Scotland. So it's have very similar issues. So we're hopeful that I think the government recognise that all of those things coming together mean that if you want this kind of world-class prosecution service, then you need to pay for it, as well as pay equality between uh, what you pay lawyers and different arms of government. Not not something you want hanging around your neck as you're heading into an election camp, uh, uh, you know, a general election Scotland camp campaign either, I would imagine. And I think also ministers need to understand it takes a lot to get senior public servants to consider industrial action. Absolutely. You know, they don't, they don't do this easily or yeah. readily. And, and, you know, we've been very patient with, with the service around this. We've been working with them on a kind of plan and try to persuade Scottish government to fund this over about 18 months now. And that's come yeah. to, it's, it's, it's come to nothing. And therefore we're now at a point where this really is, is the only option we've got left. And um, I just hope yeah. Scottish government and ministers recognize it as part of the, budget setting process over this month yes we should know by the end yeah. of this month whether they, they've recognized it and will allocate the resources needed well let's let, let's hope so i mean we've spoken so far uh, dave about about the fda civil service membership but of course together with unison you set up uh, managers in partnership which looks after uh, and seeks to engage uh, senior nhs and, and health sector managers i mean that that whole structure fascinates me the idea i don't i'm not aware of any other two unions who have acted in that way to, to address a particular uh, need uh, in a sector of the economy. Those two questions I'd be interested in your views on. The first is, if you knew then what you know now about the way in which that joint venture worked, w- would you have changed anything? You know, what's been the lessons of experience? And secondly, do you think that that model, that kind of joint venture approach, is one that could lend itself to other areas as well, not just in the FDA's ambit but but perhaps more generally in the economy i mean i was about an fda when it was created there was actually it was part of the vision of my predecessor jonathan bomb and i think one of the things with jonathan was that um and i really kind of learned from it was uh, which is easy in a small union is the kind of flexibility of approach and, and it was about saying how what what would work as two unions come together 
trying to represent members in the same field, looking at the strengths and weaknesses of both organisations. How can you pull that together in a way that is, serves the best interests of members rather than it being a kind of merger or the kind of usual functions of it? And I think that flexibility and innovation that created it was just fantastic and, and is testament to those, you know, both in terms of, of, of Unison, uh, Dave Prentice and, and Jonathan Bond, the General Secretary, who, who, put that, uh, who put that model together. And it is quite unique because when you join managers and partnership, you essentially join two unions. It's, it doesn't actually have a kind of legal basis. It is uh, because there's joint union membership and there's a joint agreement on how it works on a joint board and a separate kind of staffing around it. It very much has a look and feel of a separate union that is focused solely on the interests of uh, senior healthcare managers, but essentially has the two organisations to support it and provide the kind of backing and, and, and funding that was needed to kind of get it off the, get it off the ground. In terms of your question about what we do differently, I think that what, what has worked really well is that both organisations, despite being quite different, have have what because of the way it was structured have worked very well in terms of a kind of joint board. So there's not been what would almost inevitably in the trade union world be a dispute <laughs> over pro, over a you know, policy area or, or how it operates that kind of stuff. So there's that's been a commitment from individuals, but it's also been part of the structure of it. What it has done though is it's meant that at times some decision making has been quite cumbersome. And I think particularly from as a kind of small union, General Secretary, if you want something to happen, you can quite quickly make a decision and make it happen. So when there have been particular issues, particularly around staffing or issues like that, then at times there's just been, I think, a slowness of decision decision making. And it can get wound up in one, each of the union's kind of internal kind of politics or whatever that's going on. So I think a little more delegation and flexibility around decision making is what I would have done. But I have to say that's that's on the margins right of it because right. I think it really is a model for unions to look at because it's been been kept so flexible in a way around the kind of governance structures, then it's meant that actually you could you could look at take those principles and apply it in any number of sectors. You know, and you know there's a lot of competition at times between unions. There's a lot of crossover and unions can get very sensitive about it. And I think what's really worked well is two unions recognising that actually, if we can find a way of working together, it really benefits the membership. It delivers what the members want and it delivers the best of both. I always like to say it's the kind of the biggest union and the best union coming together is, is how I kind of describe our, our kind of work with Unison um, on it. And it really has taken the both. It's taken, as a senior manager's union, our ability and understanding of the issues that those members face and provided very high quality service to them using a kind of model that FDA um, applies and, and is kind of one of our, our um, USPs. And then it's taken the kind of collective strength of a big union unison and giving those managers a foot in the door and a voice in the way that means they don't get lost in the kind of broader healthcare workers. So, and the chief executive sits on a lot, uh, John Russell sits on a lot of the kind of key bodies in the health sector. So that voice of managers is heard um, when there are obviously a lot of competing voices in the, um, uh, in the NHS workforce. So it's, it's really done that. And I think lots of unions could look at that model and say, rather than compete, 
how can we work together without losing your sovereignty? You need to give up a little bit, but you're, you know, it's a bit like being part of the European Union. It's not about sovereignty. You, if you willingly give it up, you're saying, actually, I'm giving this bit up and recognising there's a, a separate decision-making process. And that at times has been difficult for Unison because they've had a group of Unison members saying something different from the main Unison position. And obviously that's something that they've had to live with as well. So it is a fantastic model, actually, in terms of how unions can cooperate. And, you know, I'm hopeful that it will not be the end of that sort of model for us. Uh, I think it's it's important that we don't just, as a union, we think about, we are trade unions. So therefore, I think one of the things that can get lost at times with bigger unions and more general unions is you lose that identity. And I think trying to keep that identity is important. So for us, it's not just about going anywhere and representing any group of people. Uh, but I think looking at other areas where you've got senior public servants who that sense that we can add value to for being involved in the representation is something that we would want to look at and explore whether that was with Unison or other unions. So it's a model that is very much alive for us in thinking about how we might go forward elsewhere. I'm fascinated to, to see how that, that, that kind of develops because it's not just a servicing model, it's an organising model as well. And it's been going for 15 years, got 6,000 members, absolutely solid, well embedded, and clearly acts to unionise and, and, and service that particular group. Hmm. Going going back to to the civil service area, there's there's a persistent noise, isn't there? Sometimes louder than others about civil service reform, and I mean, you you have people who could perhaps kindly be described as disruptors, like Dominic Cummings coming in with a very clear statement that about what he wanted to do. For for example, okay, he's gone now, but but nevertheless, this ongoing there's an ongoing debate about civil service re- reform. Do you think there is a case for civil service reform? And if so, reform in what way? I think it's, I think one of the problems with, with, with that phrase about civil service reform is if you talk to a civil servant, they would say, my organisation is constantly reform and we are constantly evolving and changing. We're having to face new and changing priorities, demands, more resources, less resources, leaving the, the, the European Union, dealing with pandemic. So, Every bit of the civil service is constantly having to think about how it organises itself and how it delivers in very competing and changing environments. You know, if you look at even the last five years, there have been hundreds of ministerial changes. We've had, you know, three general elections, three different prime ministers. And then when you start to move down to departmental changes, you know, most government departments have had half a dozen secretaries of state, never mind junior ministers. And each time that happens, you know, there are changing demands and ministers have changing priorities. And no organisation normally has to deal with it. No private sector organisation has to turn 180 degrees because some minister's done the wrong thing, um, has been caught, gets sacked, a new minister's brought in and you'd think there'd be a continuity of policy and suddenly entire policies can change overnight simply because of those kind of facts. Now, that's how the civil service has to operate on a day-to-day basis almost. So it's constantly dealing with change and changing priorities. And as a result of that, that drives a lot of innovation and change. So I think one of the problems that when we talk about reform is that actually it's as if something that's being done to the civil service and only to the civil service when ministers decide it's a priority, rather than understanding that as an organisation of 
nearly half a million people, 250 organisations with some of the most talented public sector leaders in the country, it is constantly evolving and changing. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a need, both from a political sense and across the entire organisation, to look and say what needs to change and evolve to, to in a kind of strategic sense, that needs a bit more of a kind of central strategic direction that to, to cope with the challenges of the future rather than just what's happened in the past. So, so I, so I think civil servants rightly bristle at times when ministers talk about reform. And I, and I think in many ways it's, you know, come and walk a while, a mile in my shoes and see what yeah. we're doing, right? And, and talk in reality. And I think that was some of the frustrations around particularly the Cummings agenda. It was very nebulous. It was very much conceptual. It actually seemed to be a bit more about people. And when you look at it and say, well, actually, what where, what was the reality of what you talked about? What actually changed? You get rid of some people, right? And you were kind of dismissive of anyone, essentially, who was you know part of the blob. But other than that, what actually were you trying to do? So I, so I, I think it, it's difficult dealing with this. There is no one more up for reform than civil servants, and both in terms of saying... Actually, if that's directed by ministers, we'll embrace it if we've, uh, because that's what we do. And also trying to understand what actually you're trying to achieve. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of where it becomes just the, a bit, a bit like it was to a degree, uh, though I think it's a bit unfair on Maud because I think Maud did actually bring in some, some, some welcome reform. And he also, whether you agreed with him or not, clearly had a particular agenda. And there was substance behind it. I think with this government, it's felt a little more nebulous and a little more culture war to talk about the civil service and civil service reform as, you know, you're just this blob that doesn't know how to organise itself and, and we're here to solve the problems for you. And that's it, been more about that sort of narrative than actually about detail and reform. Yeah, what, yeah what, I, take, I take the point. You know, I mean, I mean, if you look at one of the issues that, that, that actually looks like it's got some traction which is the Places for Growth strategy, which is about moving jobs out of central London. And I think that, again, one of the problems with it is, is that the, the you know, the, the Prime Minister and, and, and Michael Gove as Minister for the Cabinet Office talk about this in the sense of saying, well, this is actually about solving the problem, which was why the civil service didn't understand Brexit. So, so therefore, if you go and you put civil service jobs in Sunderland, you're going to understand those people more than you're going to be in London, right? And I don't actually think there's a lot of evidence about that. And that those issues are about politicians as much as about the civil service and that you can make a lot of, a lot of the civil service a lot less efficient if you just keep dropping little bits of it in different towns around, around the country. But actually, should the civil service look and feel more like the citizens it represents and, and looks after, then absolutely. Is there a concentration of power in central London? Absolutely. Would a lot of civil servants quite like to have a job and a career outside of London? Absolutely. So you can see how those things, are, actually, there are a lot of good elements of this. You know, and they're looking at, you know, 40% of jobs being home-based. And if they do it properly and you can genuinely have a career out of London, so you can move between government departments and you can move up a career ladder without having to travel into London or, or get a, or move back to London to be able to do that, then that's got to be a good thing. It's going to be a good thing for the economy, distributing jobs around the country. It's going to be a good thing in terms of ensuring that the civil service looks and feels like the citizens that uh, it serves. And it probably will be a good thing for the kind of element that they're saying around making sure that people who are making decisions or advising ministers are close to a more varied community. 
But, you know, ministers need to give up a lot for that to happen. They have to recognise that either they're going to move out as well or that the people who surround them are not necessarily going to be on the same floor of a building in Whitehall. Otherwise, what you do, which has happened in the past when governments have done this, is what it does do is subsidise the railway companies because you end up with people shuttling back and forth to London from York or Manchester or Sheffield or Birmingham, you know, three times a week because the minister wants to see them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are synergies that, in, in IR terms, there are synergies there. Uh, it's just a question of, of putting the two ends together and hoping something, you know, making something productive come out of it. I'm not clear where the government are on it yet. It still feels a little bit culture war and a little bit, you just didn't understand Brexit, therefore oh. we're dropping a thousand jobs from the Treasury in Darlington. No, no I mean, it's just, look, COVID has put a wrecking ball through all the arguments about remote working. And post-COVID, there's the capacity for everything to look different in a good way. And there's opportunities for, for everyone there. Dave, before, before, before we go, before we, we, we wrap up, I mean, I'm aware that, that you're coming up for 10 years in the, the job as General Secretary of the FDA, which, uh, by my calculation means that, that there's an, a GS election coming up some, 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 sometime soon. I know from what we were saying before we, we switched the, the tape on that, that when your membership figures are announced uh, in, in a month or so, they're going to show a very significant and welcome increase in FDA membership. Are, are you going to carry on or are you going to be, a, be demure about that. I mean, there's presumably there is that you you clearly feel, and there clearly is lots still to do. It's. I, I mean, I feel very fortunate in that this is an incredible job. You know, as it very much feels like a privilege to be elected to be general secretary of, of any trade union, but particularly the FDA. I've been at the organisation just over twenty years now. It's it's just coming up for nine years as, as general secretary, and I'm due for election again. If the members will have me, I, I'd like to stay. The, one of the amazing things about about the organisation is what our members do for a living. It just fills me with such pride and passion to be able to defend and support them in what they're doing because I know they do such incredible work. So it, it, it makes it very easy to be passionate about the job that we do. We're not short of challenges in relation to that job. We've, we've had as an organisation for over 100 years now and is embedded in our, our constitution about defending the civil service as well as the civil servants individually. So it's not just a trade union job that is about looking at pay or conditions or those sorts of issues. It's very much a job which is about trying to ensure the civil service operates effectively and all of the good bits of the civil service that potentially can come under threat and are very much under threat just now, you know, are maintained and we, we are a public voice for that. And that, again, is a privilege... At, to be able to be the one who's trusted to to articulate that and to try and defend that. So it makes it such a fascinating and rewarding job uh, that I do. I work with some incredible people, both the, the talented staff at FDA, our elected representatives and, and our members. I get to meet some of the cleverest, most engaging public sector leaders. Uh, you know, you, you sit in a room with some of these people and you know that they are always the cleverest people in whatever room they come and sit in. And you know that they are doing such an amazing job on behalf of the public as well. So again, that helps, I think, for me in terms of you, you, you don't need a motivation to do this because yeah. it just comes and kind of spades around it. And I absolutely love it. You know, it, it's it's so enjoyable and it's so different every day. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily want to be here until I retire. I don't know, you know. They might tire of me, you know, at some point. Um, I'm very aware of that, that when you lead an organisation, you know, people can look at it and say, well, actually, you've led this for a long time, you know. 
you know, I, I don't want it to appear kind of North Korean style that it's taken for granted that I'll continue long, as long as I want. And I don't think that should be the case. You know, as long as I'm enjoying it, as long as members think I'm doing a good job, then, then I want to continue it. But I'm also very aware that that could change either for me or for um, or for the members as well. So it's tough trying to think about another job that would give me such pleasure and enjoyment and intellectual challenge and reward, essentially. I get back so much more than I give. Well, my thanks today for really candid, thoughtful, fascinating insight into the world of senior civil servants and senior managers in the health sector as well. If you want to find out more about the campaigns that Dave was talking about, about the structure of the union, about the MIP organisation as well, you can find all the links and all the signposting on the companion blog post to this podcast, which is over on the makesyouthink.com website. Now it's my pleasure to introduce a new regular feature for this series of Union Jews. I'm delighted that Mel Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow, has agreed to contribute a regular weekly view, thought for the week if you like, on an industrial relations topic of the moment. And in this first contribution, she talks about the campaign by the National Education Union to keep school students, staff and parents and families safe during the COVID crisis and how it's been undermined from an unlikely source. Hi, thank you very much. This week I've been thinking about health and safety, which is probably not very surprising during a global pandemic. It's the one moment where the difference of interest between workers and employers really comes to the fore. And this week in the UK, we've had an excellent campaign run by our National Education Union to close schools because of the risk of coronavirus to teachers and other school employees, which has really gained support, huge amount of support amongst parents and other stakeholders. And, and really, they've run some amazing online organising campaigns and really shifted policy in the UK so that there's going to be a period where online and home teaching is going to be expected over the coming weeks. Unfortunately, there's been a slight kickback against that from other employers, and many employers in the UK are now encouraging their, their staff to self-define as key workers so that those staff can continue to send their children to school, thereby keeping other areas of the economy going. And I think whilst this has been a fantastic campaign run by the NEU, it does show the, the limits of understanding solidarity within a particular occupational group or professional group, or in this case, school-based workers in general. And I'm very supportive of the, the campaign in general, but I think what it shows is that there's real scope to think more collectively uh, about solidarities across the workforce and across the communities in general. And health and safety, particularly during a pandemic, is a really emblematic issue that gives that opportunity. I think it's the nature of contemporary trade unions that we often think in silos and organising activity is often targeted at particular occupational groups or particular professional groups. And that solidarities are therefore defined with reference to members of those trade unions. But there's more and more evidence that when we run campaigns and organise workers more, more generally, and particularly trade workers who haven't had so much history with trade unions – 
We need to articulate much more broadly the basis of solidarity beyond occupational groups and professional groups. And we need to be very explicit with those those workers, those potential members, that actually there's a benefit in thinking collectively about issues such as health and safety, and that we will all benefit if we actually approach the challenge as a, as a collective one across the labour force, across society more generally. And I think that's really hard for a lot of trade unions to think about because the nature of the structure of unions means they are focused on their members and rightly so. But if we have any opportunity during coronavirus to, to rethink how we're att- uh, approaching union organising, I think this gives a fantastic opportunity to showcase the very excellent work that unions do around health and safety in the workplace, as well as a huge number of other issues and really pull in a much wider audience than we've previously had. My thanks to Mel for that contribution. It certainly, I hope, made you think. Now, before wrapping things up for this week, a couple of shout outs. Uh, First to my friends in the Labour Research Department who continue to publish fantastic handbooks for negotiators and trade union reps. One of the most recent ones came out over the Christmas period was their handbook on negotiating the national minimum wage and the national living wage. Very timely as new rates have just been agreed by the government to apply from the 1st of April. Also over the Christmas period, uh, we had government naming and shaming quite a significant number of companies who failed to comply with the national minimum wage and the national living wage. Now, a lot of these acts of non-compliance are, in monetary terms, quite small scale. A number of them are inadvertent, but it nevertheless shows that there's an issue. The NLW, NMW, that's the flaw. That is the, the, the wage floor below which no one should fall. The Labour Research Guide to Negotiating the National Living Wage, the National Minimum Wage, is a very timely and could be a potentially very useful publication for union reps who are looking after members in this area. And you can get that and information about all of the work that they do at lrd.org.uk. Second shout out is to my friends and colleagues on the National Labour Podcast Network. That's a portal through which you can access this and about 70 trade union themed podcasts. Really interesting, entertaining, valuable source of, source of information, mostly skewed towards the US, uh, but nevertheless extending over to the UK and into Canada as well. And you can find them at labourradionetwork.org. And if you want to know more about the Union Jews podcast, a rather nice profile uh, that Evan Matthew Papp of Empathy Media Labs did of the podcast series. Uh, Just a kind of 20 minute thing about how the show is put together, where the ideas come from and where the idea for Union Jews came from to, to start with. If you put Empathy Media Lab Union Jews into any search engine, you'll find both podcast version and a YouTube video version as well. Well, that's just about it for this episode, this first episode of the third series of Union Juice. Thank you so much for choosing to spend time with us. Thank you too to my guests, Dave Penman and Mel Sims. I hope you found it a, a good listen. Please do let us know what you think on any of the issues that we've covered, on the things that you think we should cover. You can contact the show by email, unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. We'd love to hear your views. Your feedback is really important to us. We've got some fabulous guests coming up in this third series, people and issues that you'll really want to listen to, find out more about. You can register for updates by subscribing to the podcast or by following the Makes You Think 
companionblog.com website. And the makesyouthink.com website is where the companion blog to this podcast is published. It contains all the links, all the signposting you need to all the many things that we've spoken about. So it just leaves me to say that whatever you're doing, stay safe, stay well. Let's look after each other during these continuing difficult times. Huge thanks to all the key workers and frontline staff. And I'll see you next time on the next edition of Union Juice. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.